right, you have an outline. Take that out. And as you're grabbing that, I want to draw your attention to a news story that uh, I'm not sure if all of us saw this past week. Did any of you see this picture in the newspaper? It's a picture of um, a letter written by a gentleman who was on the Titanic when it sunk that was sold at an auction this past Saturday. So a week ago yesterday, it sold at an auction for $166,000. It was written from a man by the name of Alexander Hovelson. Um, you can see the embossed Titanic stationery on it. And it was a letter written to his mother, of all people. It was tucked inside of a uh, pocketbook that he had that was found on his body as he perished in um, the sinking of the Titanic as it hit that iceberg on that fatal uh, night. The letter was recovered. You can see some of the water stains and such on it and was given to his mother. And one of the reasons that it sold for so much money was because it was dated on April 13th 1912, which was the day right before the Titanic sank on its maiden journey from England to New York. Now, I'll bring up a little bit more about this letter in just a bit, but I would guess that the author of that letter, Alexander Hobbleson, as he wrote it, he had no idea whatsoever that it would make global headlines a century letter. So let me share with you about a second letter that has also made global headlines as we celebrate it. And actually, 500 years later that it made these headlines, 500 years from Tuesday on October 31st, 1517, a man by the name of Martin Luther wrote a letter and had it nailed to a church in Wittenberg, Germany. He nailed it to a church on the door, and the letter was written by Martin Luther, and it contained 95 theses, which we look now and say sparked what began as the Protestant Reformation. In short, Martin Luther disagreed with a number of things that the Catholic Church was teaching at the time, the main one being salvation is connected to some sort of work. Martin Luther said, no, as I read Scripture, I see that it is faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ that gets me into heaven and has nothing whatsoever to do with any sort of works other than a faith in Jesus Christ. Again, like the letter of a man who sunk in the Titanic catastrophe, a hundred years later, we talk about that letter, and 500 years later to the day on Tuesday, we remember another letter that was written by a gentleman who was saying, I have something to share that I think goes back to Scripture. And I would guess that he never, ever, ever would have thought that we would be talking about that 500 years later as well. Let me share with you another set of letters. And those are the ones that you hold in your hand if you have a Bible in your hand. They're letters written by the, a man by the name of Paul who previously was named Saul, 
They're letters that cause Martin Luther to do what he did. They're letters that cause us as a church to read through and have a study as we have. They're letters that have dictated our theology here at First Baptist and what we believe about God and how he operates and how he shares his message with us. You remember Paul's story? I don't want to go a lot into it, but I shared this a few months ago. Paul was one of those guys who um, no person except Jesus Christ no person but Paul uh, has shaped the history of Christianity like this author of these letters. His name was Saul when he was a Christian killer, but it later became Paul as he was an outspoken Christian willing to be killed for his faith. He wrote over half of the New Testament books or letters as we know them, um, shaping our Christian theology and doctrine. His missionary endeavors are revolutionary as he was called to the Jews, but then took it to the Gentiles as well as it was revealed to him that God came for all people. Simply put, Paul Paul is a game changer. That is who he is. And the words that he has written, the letters that he has written, has changed everything about who we are today because he looked back and said, this is what Jesus did for us, and this is why we live our faith in the way that we do. Paul wasn't always like that, though. He was a very religious person. Remember what kind of religious sect he was. He was, he was a Pharisee. And being a Pharisee, he thought he had it all figured out, which God revealed that he didn't. And so on the road to Damascus, God met him in a vision, rocked everything about what he knew, caused Paul to say, hey, instead of killing people in your name, I will now try and save them in your name, and I will share your name wherever I go. And so Paul... What he did then was go around to a number of churches, and as he went to these churches, he shared the messages. In fact, we have a map here of a number of churches that he went to in this known world. And so this is an audience participation time, so help me on this. He went to a city called Philippi, and then he wrote back to them a letter called what? Philippians. Yeah, you got that. And then he went to a city called Thessalonica, and he wrote back a couple letters called what? Thessalonians. He didn't actually write one of the letter. He wrote a couple different letters to them. Then he goes to a city called Colossae and writes back a letter to them called Colossians. You guys are intelligent on this. He goes to a city called Galatia, writes back a letter called... Then he goes to a city called Stockton and writes back a letter called... Oh, that one's not in there, is it? All right, all right. Well, that's okay. Then he goes eventually, eventually to a city called Rome and writes a letter called Romans. And so the timeline that we've been on as we've been going through this series, God's Grand Story, is we come to a place now in the upper right-hand corner called Paul's Letters. And as you can see, he wrote a number of these letters that we could actually spend decades, we could spend a lifetime studying these books. But today, I'm going to grab just a few of his letters and look at some of the major themes in those letters. The first one being what caused Martin Luther to finally comprehend what he wrote, the 95 Theses that he nailed to the door, and that was speaking to the church in Rome. Paul writes these words in Romans chapter uh, 1, verses 16 and 17, that has the theme of it. And get this now. Here's what he said. It's the first filling on your outline. He says, salvation comes by faith alone. And that was revolutionary. 
Salvation comes by faith and faith alone in Jesus. In fact, would you read this verse with me? This is what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. Read it with me. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He goes back and Paul realizes Abraham was credited to him as righteousness as he believed what God wanted him to do. And so Paul is writing these words to a group of people in Rome saying, hey, I tried to keep the law. I tried to do it all in the Old Testament. In fact, I did as well as I could, but I kept getting tripped up. And he realizes that God's righteousness is revealed not through a set of works and things that we do, but it's revealed in faith. A faith in Jesus Christ and only a faith in Jesus Christ that can gain us access to heaven when we pass on. And so Martin Luther was reacting to, and and the straw that actually broke the camel's back was a teaching by the Roman Catholic Church at the time in the 1500s that caused people to feel as though they had to pay indulgences. If you don't know what that word is, it's you had to pay to be forgiven. You had to give something to their church. You had to give something to it in an offering, and that would allow you to feel as though you could gain access to heaven by the money that you paid. And Martin Luther's boiling point on all of that came when a Franciscan friar who was commissioned by the Catholic Church by the name of Johann Tetzel began selling these indulgences because they were trying to build St. Peter's Basilica. And Tetzel said these words, these infamous words. He said, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, as soon as it's placed in there, then the soul from purgatory comes out and gets to be in heaven. And as soon as Martin Luther heard that, he said, absolutely not. No way. That's not what's written in Scripture. That's not what Jesus taught. And so he refers back to in this verse that we just read, the righteous shall live by faith and faith alone. I mean, can you imagine I or one of our other pastors or one of our deacons getting up or saying anything that would reflect that you can have access to heaven if you just pay enough? I would hope you would tar and feather me and take me off the stage if I ever said that. I'll lead the charge if someone else ever says it from up here because it's just not true. That's not the way it is. When people give around here at First Baptist, and I hope that you come into that category, that when you give, you give out of obedience because God wants us to be generous, but you give out of thankfulness because of how generous God has given to you, how much he has given to you. And we do that. We reflect that we're thankful people because of God's generosity. Not because you have to be compelled. Not because it causes you to have greater standing with God. Not ultimately because you get to heaven like that. You give because you love. I I hope some of you walked through the Welcome Center today and smelt a little different smell in the Welcome Center. Anybody, Anybody smell that? New carpet. 
New carpet in the Welcome Center. And we are so thankful. You know why that came about? Because there's a couple in the church who said, you know, we notice the carpet's getting kind of old. We want to replace that. We know we're going to be buying the Scottish right. They're very generous givers to that as well. But they said, let's not forget what we're doing over here. Can we replace that now? We have plans to hopefully do that in the next few months. They said, let's do it sooner than later. That's just because of people's generosity. Saying, that's why I want to give. I hope that's why you give. I hope when you come to worship on Sunday mornings, you come with that same type of a spirit of God, speak to me. Of God, I know I'm blessed. You have blessed me, and so I'm blessed to be a blessing. God, I want to worship you. I want to hear that it wouldn't be anything ever tied into maybe trying to earn God's favor or feeling like we have to come to worship. We, we, we get to come to worship. And if you ever take that for granted, if you ever do, read stories or travel overseas to countries where faith is restricted. And I bet you would never, ever again take your faith for granted, take this worship time for granted. But people do. And maybe some are here by compulsion. In fact, some of you may even be here today. If you were honest with yourself, maybe not consciously but subconsciously, You're here and you've been operating more along the lines of like the saying in the box here, faith plus blank equals salvation. Now don't write these next words in here. I'll guide you when you write the words. But you will probably, some of you might be saying faith plus good works equals salvation. Or maybe it's faith plus my prayers equals salvation. Or maybe it's faith plus attending church or maybe it's faith plus giving in the offering. There are a lot of different things that maybe we think earn favor with God. Understand this. And, and you probably heard people say this. I mean, some people will say, you know what? I'll give up my bad habits. And when I give up my bad habits, then I think God will accept me more. And then that's when I'll come to God. You know what that is? That's salvation by subtraction. You're trying to get rid of something so that you can be accepted by God. That's a list of don'ts. And God doesn't operate that way. In fact, other people may think, you know what? I'll I'll work real hard and I'll earn it. But that's salvation by service or salvation by works. And there is no biblical basis for that. In fact, God doesn't grade on a curve. You can't be good enough. I can't be good enough. And I am so glad God does not grade on a curve because I would be at the bottom of that curve. Each of us probably would. We can't be good enough. And so God says, I don't, I, don't, I don't grade you that way. Because that's salvation by service or by works. Some of you might, might even think, again, maybe it's even subconsciously. Well, you know what? My mother or my grandmother was a Christian, so that makes me a Christian. No. Doesn't work that way as well. That's salvation by heritage. There's no scriptural basis for that. Or maybe some people would say, you know what, I'll be religious and I'll go to church. I'll be real religious and go to church. You know what, going to church, we've said this before, going to church does not make you a Christian any more than living in a garage makes you a car, right? Right? Or going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger just because you're with a bunch of hamburgers, okay? It just just doesn't happen. Here's what you can fill in. Listen to this. Salvation comes by faith and faith alone, which means faith plus nothing equals salvation. Faith in Jesus plus nothing is what gains you access to heaven. 
In fact, theologians use this big word. Let me give you a big theological word, okay? You don't even have it in your outline. This is a freebie for you, but write it down if you want to look smart, okay? It's the word imputation. Imputation. Let me spell it for you. I am P-U-T-A-T-I-O-N. Imputation. What that simply means is that my sin, not in part, but the whole amount, my sin is imputed to Christ. And Christ takes that sin and goes to the cross as my substitute and endures God's cup of wrath upon him. Then Christ's righteousness is put or imputed on me. And his perfect obedience is counted as mine, and I'm now declared righteous. That is a messed up deal for Jesus, but it means everything because that's what he desired to do. We gain everything from that. He goes to the cross, we get the reward. God doesn't see anymore our sins. Those sins are put on Christ, and we're given his righteousness. That's grace. That's the grace you have through faith. In fact, look what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, or verse 8. It says, for by grace you have been saved. And what's the word? Through what? Through faith. Through faith in Jesus. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. But what it means is that you have to open that gift. If you're given a gift, you still have to open it to see what it is. That's your responsibility. That faith, that trust, it's a gift to you. Faith and faith alone. Secondly, a major theme in Paul's letters that he writes, and and one that rocked Martin Luther as it helped shape his theology and has helped shape our theology, is this. Scripture has sole authority. Scripture has sole authority. In fact, it's the word sola scriptura. Would you say that with me? Sola Scriptura. Say it one more time. Sola Scriptura. You are now a Latin theologian. You know Latin, all right? You got it. Sola Scriptura means Scripture alone. Scripture alone speaks to us. First Timothy, or excuse me, Second Timothy 3.16. In fact, would you read this verse with me? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. What this is saying is this. Yes, God's Word speaks to us by His Holy Spirit. Yes, God's Holy Spirit can even speak to us personally. But sola scriptura is the belief that the Bible contains everything we need to know in order to be reconciled to God and live in a righteous way that God wants us to live. That is, Scripture speaks above all other authority meaning it speaks above your pastor, it speaks above the church, it speaks above church tradition. Scripture is the authority. In the Baptist faith, that's what we go back to. All of our beliefs, all of our values are set upon Scripture. And if you come and ask me an opinion, I'm going to go back to Scripture and say, well, let's see what God's Word says because I don't have that opinion or I don't have that church history or I can't go back and say, well, here's what we did in the past. It, it, it needs to go back to Scripture, and Scripture alone is our authority. It's, it's one of the reasons, and I'm not going to cover that point a lot because we talked about that at the beginning of the series, but it's one of the reasons that we practice baptism the way we do. 
Here in the Baptist faith, the First Baptist, we call it a believer's baptism, which means you wait until you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to get baptized. And we do it by immersion, which means to take someone down underwater and to bring them back up. And we do that because that's what's taught in Scripture. That, that, that's the full extent of what it is. And so we don't go back to church tradition. We don't go back to some tradition that someone else set. We go back to what it says in Scripture and how that has come about. Christ was baptized that way. We follow his example in doing that. He commands us to be baptized. So, so for someone to say, well, I don't really want to get baptized or it makes me uncomfortable to get baptized, Jesus asks us to do that to demonstrate our faith. In fact, what it is simply is it's an object lesson. Much like when Jesus died on the cross and went into the grave, into the tomb for three days, the same kind of imagery is shared when we're taken down underwater. It's like we're baptized down. We're taken under the water. So we go under the water for three days, and we are brought back up. No, just joking. Three days would uh, get you right to heaven, wouldn't it, right? No, you just go down underwater, but it's like the three-day journey. You go down underwater, and then you come back up to reflect what Jesus did and dying to himself, dying, that's what we do. We die to ourself and then we rise again to new life. And so the verse here out of Romans chapter 6, verse 4, says it like this. It says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So again, if you have not been baptized that way, you go back to Scripture. That's the way Jesus was baptized. Every baptism in the Bible was done that way. The word, in fact, the word baptist, excuse me, baptize is a Greek word, baptizo, and the literal meaning of it is to dip underwater. And so that's why we say if you were sprinkled or poured upon, hey, you know what? Baptism does not get you into heaven, but we believe it's the most biblical way of demonstrating that I have accepted Christ into my life. And it's an outward expression of an inward faith. And so we give that to you to say after this service, Pastor Derek will take you through that class that will enable you to be baptized right up here in our baptistry um, in a couple of weeks. Uh, and if you were here last week, you'll hear, you would have heard a testimony from Amber Wood who said the baptism was just the experience that really cemented in her life that I am living my life for Jesus. My life has been changed for him. And I would pray that if you have a faith in Christ, that you would also follow the biblical teaching of baptism and take that step. Because we understand it to be that Scripture is what speaks to us. And Scripture tells us to be baptized. So, faith alone was one of Paul's major themes. Scripture alone that teaches us above all authority. And then the last thing that's on your outline is, again, this major theme of the priesthood of the believer. The priesthood of the believer. And I know that's coming up on the screen right there. Priesthood of the believer. Which says in 1 Timothy, in fact, would you read it with me? 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 7, go. For there is one God... There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
This priesthood of believers says that God speaks to all of us directly and that we can and should serve and share his name. And so Martin Luther wrote, or excuse me, Paul wrote this, and Martin Luther used a verse like this to spark, again, the Protestant Reformation understanding that you don't have to go through a priest or a pastor. That God can speak directly to you. You can have direct access to God. In fact, to be forgiven, you can go straight to him um, by what Jesus did for us on the cross. You don't have to go through another intermediary. It's Jesus who is the mediator between God and man. That also means your prayers are heard just as readily as someone else's prayers, just as readily as my prayers are heard because we can go to him directly. So in a sense, what that makes you is a priest. In fact, Peter, he capitalizes on this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He says, you're like living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house. And then he writes these words, to be a holy priesthood. That's what you are. And then Paul reiterates this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, This is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. It's not just me. I don't open up these words and say, oh, I got this mysterious word to share with you today because God said it directly to me and you don't have access to it. No, you do because we give you God's word to read and God speaks to all people and God can speak to you according to his word. And Paul emphasizes that. You're a messenger of that. And do you know what that then means? Out of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it means this. You're his workmanship. He's writing your story. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for you to do, that you should just walk in them. Every day you wake up, God has things for you to do. He has times that you should be blessing people. He has times that you should be listening to him. He has great works for you to do, to be a blessing to people all around you. Not just a pastor, not just a priest, not just someone who is ordained or, 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 or chosen. We're all chosen. And when we choose him, he chooses us to be that share of the gospel. And do you know what that opens up? Let, let me show you this. Jesus now says, you are even closer than a priest or a pastor. You are now called a friend. Look at this in verse in John chapter 15 that Jesus shares with his disciples. As he's with them, he says this. He says, you're my friends if you do what I command. And no longer do I just call you a servant. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. I've called you. What's the word there? I've called you what? I've called you friends for all I have heard from the Father. I've now made known to you. And you know what he says in the verse right before that, in verse 13? Look at this. It says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then Paul jumps all over that verse and says, guess what? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Guess what he did? God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. And that allows you to be a friend to him. That sin you have no longer keeps you away from him, but as it's forgiven by Christ, 
His righteousness is put on you. And now you can be called a friend of His. A pastor friend of mine tells a story of a woman um, that he met when he was speaking at a conference. And this gal was telling the story when she was at this conference of um, the time that she worked with uh, developmentally disabled adults. And she writes about, um, or she was telling the story about one young man uh, by the name of Mike who had Down syndrome, uh, but he had accepted Jesus in his life uh, at a camp that he went to. And um, Mike just delighted in this concept that Jesus was now a friend of his. And, and he had to share it with anybody and everybody he came into contact with. In fact, he would say the name Jesus. He pronounced it like this. He pronounced it Jesus. And he would kind of lean over about 60 degrees, and he would rub his hands together like he was trying to create some sort of a spark, and he would beam with ecstasy on his face when he greeted everyone, and he'd lean over, he'd rub those palms together, and he said, do you love Jesus? Do you know my friend Jesus? And this gal was telling the story. In fact, the pastor wrote it down and shared it, and let, let me tell you, let me just kind of read it for you. She writes, she says, within a few weeks from returning home from a camp that Mike got to go to, we at the care center got a phone call from the group home manager. She said, we have a problem with Mike. And there was a major irritation in her voice. She said, he keeps talking about Jesus, and he won't stop talking about Jesus. She said, huh, it might be good for you to hear what he has to say. So, well, after he promised not to talk quite so much, Mike was allowed to return to camp the next year, the next summer. And though Mike wasn't able to read and all he could do was, you know, kind of comprehend the thought about Jesus being his friend, the camp gave him a picture book Bible. And Mike loved to share that picture book Bible with everybody he came into contact with and share about the stories that were in there because he knew that that was his friend. Jesus. Well, that fall, the group home manager called again and said, we have a problem with Mike. And there was that familiar aggravation in her voice when she said, he now wants to go to church. Huh, said the gal. Um, do you want us to help you find one in that area? She said, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. She shrieked back. If you let him go to church, or if he goes to church, that means I'm going to have to go with him. And so the gal said, well, would you like us to find you a great church that would come and pick him up and bring him to their church? She says, yes, that would be good. Because she could then have the day off, or the morning off when Mike went to church. And so this camp director called and found a couple churches and found one that would come and pick Mike up and take him to church. And this group home coordinator was so thrilled because she got to have a little extra time off and allowed Mike to go to camp that next year. Mike brought his guitar to that camp and he actually helped to lead worship, although nobody could quite understand the words that he sang or what key he was in. But he celebrated his friend as he said, Jesus. Jesus. Well, it wasn't long after that camp that, again, the phone rang, 
And the gal says, I recognize the exasperated voice on the other line. We have a problem with Mike. He wants to now get baptized, and he's driving me crazy about this. Do you honestly think that he understands all this religious rhetoric stuff? The gal said, huh, maybe you should talk to him about it. And well, that next summer at camp, Mike did get baptized. And everyone at the camp knew when he came up out of the water because his first words out of his mouth were, Hallelujah! I love my friend Jesus! Then another call came from the group home. We have a problem with Mike. But this time there was a long pause and a crack in her voice. She said, Mike is, is dying. He has leukemia. And this will be the last summer that he can go to your camp. You know, she said, I, I'm starting to now to go to church with him. But I just called to ask if you could pray. And would you pray for him? Would you also pray for me? Because I've come to love Mike. And I may even come to love his friend Jesus. And at 33 years of age, Mike went to meet his friend Jesus. But the camp director says her husband performed the memorial service. She writes, you know, Mike did not have one living relative. Yet a larger room and additional chairs had to be found to accommodate the unexpected numbers of people that arrived at his funeral. Among the crowd were people that they had never seen before. People with disabilities, people from fast food restaurants or servers because he had gone to them and shared about Jesus. Store clerks, bus drivers, lawyers, doctors, executive directors of large companies each took turns standing and emotionally revealing Mike's impact on their lives, introducing them to his friend, Jesus. But finally, the group home coordinator who cared for Mike also stood. And she told how he had boldly explained to her how this friend Jesus could make her happier. I will never forget her tearful, thankful words that she stood and said amongst everybody at the congregation at the funeral. She said, I'm going to heaven because Mike told me about his friend Jesus. And I could only wish I could have been there in heaven at that moment when the smile creased across the face of Jesus as he greeted Mike. Now I know Mike was leaning forward. He was bursting with joy. He was rubbing his hands together when he was welcomed into heaven, looking straight into the eyes of his best friend, Jesus. And folks, you know Jesus would have looked back and not just said, well done, good and faithful servant, but would have looked back and said, well done, good and faithful friend. Friends joined because of what Jesus did for You know, Paul's letters were letters that said it is faith in Jesus alone that gets you access to heaven. 
It is the scriptures that it is revealed to us in that we turn to and understand. And you, you now are a priest. You're the ones who hear directly from God. You get to share his name with others that you come into contact with. But let me take you back to the opening letter I introduced you to. Remember the letter on the Titanic? The gentleman who wrote it? I have no idea if Alexander Havelson was a believer in Jesus Christ or not. And I am sure as he was traveling from England to New York, he thought he was safe and secure in the greatest and the largest ship that was ever built. No one thought it would sink. But one of the reasons that this letter sold for $166,000 is because it had the haunting line in it that said, if all goes well, we will arrive in New York on Wednesday morning. And sure enough, all did not go well. And I'm sure each and every one of us walking out of here today kind of feel like, if all goes well tomorrow, I'll do this. If all goes well next week, I'll be able to do this. If all goes well next month, I'll do this. Next year, I'll do this. But we have no idea if all's going to go well. You may be on the, your life may be on the Titanic right now, and we know what happened there. And so my encouragement to you today is to get things right now. Is to realize you have a friend in Jesus who wants a personal relationship with you that doesn't come from any deeds, it comes from faith alone. To realize his word is coming to you, it's written by scriptures, it is revealed here, and it's how we have that personal relationship with him. And it's to realize that when we accept him as Lord, that we are now listen to him and his voice speak to us. And we have a responsibility to share that with others. That's your step. That's your opening the gift of the friendship that Jesus offers by the cross. And if there be anybody in here today who has not taken that step, then don't go any farther. Let's do that right now. Would you pray with me? God, I I thank you for an opportunity we have to open up your word. Words on a page that are set into motion by your Holy Spirit. Words on a page that have caused the death of Christians across this world and is still doing it today. God, we're going to pray this week even for people who will die because they have a scripture in their hands. And yet it's scriptures that bring life to everyone who has ever lived. God, I thank you for Paul's words, for the way your Holy Spirit spoke to him had him pen those words that were written to recipients that we here in Stockton are just as able to receive now. Words that breathe life. Words that say, if you confess with your lips, if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Folks, today, If you have never prayed to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, do not go a second further, for you don't know what tomorrow brings. You don't know what this afternoon brings. Today's the day to take that step to say yes to Jesus in faith. If you have any doubt whatsoever, just repeat these words after me. Lord Jesus, today I invite you to come into my life. Lord Jesus, today I surrender my life to you. Lord Jesus, today... I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior. 
I ask for forgiveness of my sins. Lord, I repent. I turn. I'm following you now. Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe. And even if you just want to mouth those words, Lord Jesus, I invite you in. That can be your confession with your heart, with your, with your lips. But I do invite you to take a step further. For even as God knows your heart and has opened up now a way to heaven, he wants you to share that with others. And so after the service, I invite you to come. Share that with me, with Pastor Stephen, with anyone else up here on stage, any of our pastors or at the Next Step Center. We would love to talk to you more about what that decision means. It changes everything. Everything. God, I thank you for the new birth and new life that you've given to even some today who have said those words and believed it in their heart. Folks, so there are some here uh, who need to take their next step in their faith. If you've not been baptized by immersion, we'd encourage you to do that. Even as Scripture shares that with us and shows Jesus getting baptized that way and everyone else in Scripture being baptized that way, Lord, we want to be obedient to you. As you have said in Matthew 28, to go and be baptized, and share, make disciples of the world. Lord, baptism is a part of that process. So folks, if you're in that category today, then right after this service, if you go out on the walkway, you'll find the stairs that lead up to the baptistry area. Pastor Derek would love to walk you through that. Just your next step. If you already know Jesus, he'll take you through that step of now how you can make him known to others as you share that baptism with those around. Even if today's a day that you'd say, I, I, I want to know this Jesus, I've just prayed to receive him, go to that meeting time. It can be a step of faith that you now take. An outward demonstration of that inward faith. Lord, thank you for our opportunity that we have to live out our faith. God, to share that faith with others. I pray that we would see ourselves not as just someone along the life of road who has no purpose and meaning, but God, we know that we are called to be your priests to share that with the world around us. May we do that faithfully. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. Now we take those steps in obedience to follow you. We love you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we now pray. Amen.